Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at Ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. In the summer of 1968, just a few months after the near toppling of the Fifth Republic in France, an event that shook the establishment in most democratic countries, the Beatles recorded John Lennon's anthem of apathy, Revolution. It begins, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. By this time, John Lennon was like so many cultural figures of his generation, firmly on the record supporting all kinds of revolutionary things. And yet, Lennon had begun to find it all exhausting. You can count me out, he sang, because you know it's going to be all right. When Christians look out at the world these days, it is hard to imagine that John Lennon's blithe remark could be true. How is everything going to be all right? And yet, that's what Christian hope is all about. Things are bad, yes, but it is going to be all right, thank God, in the fullness of God's providence. Until then, there are good things that Christians can do as a testimony to the hope within us. But we can't fix a lot of the problems of the world, and we are right to be skeptical of many forms of activism which imagine problems where they don't exist, or perhaps even worse, concoct solutions to real problems that make matters worse. You know, we do all want to change the world, but if it's not God's way, well, you know that you can count me out. The same month that the Beatles recorded Revolution, Pope St. Paul VI published an encyclical that shook the world, Humanae Vitae, which restated Catholic teaching about marriage, sex, and parenthood, and formally rejected artificial contraception known colloquially then and today as the pill. The document was a bold and somewhat unexpected move by the pontiff, seeming to reinforce a wall of Catholic dogma against what seemed like an unstoppable tidal wave of libertinism masquerading as liberation. To much of the Western world, the church had taken the wrong stand, defying a revolution destined to free people from the natural outcomes of their erotic love and pull apart the constraints of the traditional family imposed by countless generations of our ancestors. But more than 50 years later, the sexual revolution has not delivered on its promises, to say the least. And my guest today, Mary Eberstadt, presents an even stronger case, namely that the sexual revolution represents a civilizational leap backward. She writes, 
Evidence abounds that unprecedented sexual consumerism has complicated relations between the sexes more than any other force since Eve took the figurative apple. That the results are documented through the instruments of modern social science, as well as through popular culture and other bellwethers. And that the toll of this experiment has fallen heaviest on the weakest of shoulders. From the unborn, sacrificed in its name, to the children and women and men whose lives it continues to scar. In 2012, Eberstadt published her landmark work, Adam and Eve After the Pill, which took readers down to the microscopic level to examine evidence of the problems wrought by the sexual revolution on women, families, and institutions for over four decades. Now she has returned with a follow-up, a new title from Ignatius Press called Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, which pulls the focus back to examine broader trends on the effects of contraception and all its moral implications on today's fractured society, on our dysfunctional political atmosphere, and amid the doctrinal chaos in our Christian communities. Mary Eberstadt holds the Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C., and is a senior research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. She is the author of several books, including How the West Really Lost God, A New Theory of Secularization, and Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. It is an honor to welcome Mary Eberstadt to the podcast. Mary Eberstad, welcome to the Ignatius Press podcast. How are you? I'm very well, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a delight to get to talk to you. And uh, I think our listeners will be particularly interested to learn more about uh, your new book from Ignatius Press, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. And the last word in the title is significant because in 2012, you published Adam and Eve After the Pill which is uh, an examination of why, in many different ways, the sexual revolution has been a disaster. And as I was reading your book, um, this the new uh, revisited version, I was thinking of all the things that have changed in the world, in, in our culture, in the United States, just maybe in Western culture more generally, since 2012. It's just really amazing. In, in this short span of time, we've had the universalization of gay marriage, we've had the Me Too movement, we've had Black Lives Matter, we've had this mainstream explosion of transgenderism, just all kinds of stuff has happened. And so I just want to start there. What, what to, in your mind, you know, as you process all these major changes that have happened, what is it that sort of led you to come back to the 2012 book and, and kind of um, revisit uh, the same ideas? So the thesis of the 2012 book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution, was a deeply contrarian thesis. I had learned over the years from perfectly secular research in other realms that the dots were beginning to connect in a way that people were not discussing. And in particular, the dots about child and adolescent pathology, for example, alongside the rise of broken homes and the other trends set into motion by the embrace of the birth control pill. Uh, the, these things were 
not things that should be celebrated, which is what the dominant culture was saying. These were things that needed to be examined closely with perfectly secular evidence. And the book concluded that the sexual revolution, as you said, has been a disaster at what I call the microcosmic level. That is for individual men, women, children, and families. So the new book widens the aperture of all that. It makes the same contrarian argument, but this time we are looking at new evidence, evidence about what the sexual revolution has done to politics, to society, and to Christianity itself. And I argue that here too, the legacy is a destructive one that the dominant culture is not accounting for. All of that said, Andrew, I think that this contrarian argument can make greater headway today than it could a decade ago, partly because of the reasons you cite, because the confusion out there about who we are and what we are for is now so monumental that people outside the churches are looking at it. And that I think is a very important turn. I think, Mary, that's one of the strongest points you make in the book, which um, surprised me when I when I started reading, because obviously there's a lot to be pessimistic about, and you don't shy away from naming that and and saying it for what it is. You, you even say at one point that um, we're experiencing a civilizational leap backwards, which I thought was just a, an extraordinary statement, really, you know, because it's the opposite of the progressive ideal, right? It's actually not just that it the sexual revolution didn't work, but we're actually going backward because of it. But then, you know, you open that up to what I think is a real expression of Christian hope, which is to say, um, you know, strangely, because so many people are experiencing all of the, all of this dysfunction, there's a strange opportunity for us maybe as Christians to speak into that space. Would you say that's right? Yes, I think that the suffering out there deserves to have a name and to be recognized. And that's what I have been doing with this work that often feels thankless. I'm trying to honor the suffering out there and to tell people what the actual source of their suffering is, which I believe to be the simultaneous implosion of family and religious faith. And in both of these books, as you know, Andrew, there's a lot of secular evidence these books are not written for scholars, but scholars who want to read them will find lots and lots of references in the footnotes because it is not theology that is making the case against the sexual revolution, although theology could and does, but instead it is secular evidence piling up across the social sciences about what has happened to us since we started living in this radical new way. And I'd like to expand on that just a little bit because very soon there won't be anyone alive who wasn't born after the sexual revolution. And so it's very important to hammer home the point that we live very differently than any of our ancestors. Our ancestors lived like most mammals live in families. They lived in extended networks of kin and those who didn't were very unfortunate and often faced crises um, in life because of this. The family has been a protective uh, structure for human beings to thrive and find one another and have backup and emotional support and just plain love. 
we have deep sixed a lot of that by living the way we've lived after the sexual revolution. The revolution wrecked a lot of homes. It made families smaller. It made many families fatherless. It subtracted millions and millions of people out of other people's lives via abortion alone, for example. So all of these acts of subtraction, I'm arguing, have led us to the place where we are now, which is a place of civilizational chaos whose origins lie in the embrace of contraception beginning in the 1960s. And, you know, your examination of, of these points that you're, you're um, sketching out for us, um, as you say in the book, take the shape of a kind of tripartite structure. You, you lead us through the problems that the sexual revolution uh, have produced in society, in politics, and in the church. And I'd love to just kind of go through each one and maybe start here with the, the question of society. Um, you talk about well, well, let me start by saying this, you know, something that occurred to me as I was reading what you had to say about society is that even 12, even, you know, a few years ago in 2012, when, when your, your book, the, the original version came out, I think that a lot of us still lived with the delusion that, you know, even if we had strong faith commitments, that there was some way to kind of exist in a neutral space, you know, um, now that may be totally delusional and maybe I'm just imagining other people had that view, but, but I think some did. And something that occurred to me as I was reading what you had to say about society is I don't think many of us at all have that delusion anymore. Um, there is where we live in the midst of this, as you call it, this new intolerance or the repaganization of the world that we have this sort of new religion, as it were, that we all know is real. Um, and, you know, some of the byproducts that have come from, from people living in this space is just this increased drug use, psychiatric problems, like all these things that you were, that you were alluding to before. So I wonder if you could just walk us in there and maybe correct if you need to some of the missteps that I've, that I've uh, stated mm -hmm. there. Um, but just what's the, state of, what's the state of society that, um, you know, that, that now just a few years later we can point to as being real problems produced by the, the sexual revolution? I think the fundamental problem there, Andrew, is that the idea of live and let live is proving untenable. And the reason it's proving untenable is that the adversaries of Christianity have created, in effect, a new religion. You know, we read all the time that religion's disappearing from the West and that there's a rise of the nuns and all of this sort of thing. On a surface level, it's true, but what people are not seeing is that the 1960s and the desire to embrace the revolution and protect it at all costs have given rise to a Gnostic secularist faith. And this faith is guarded just as zealously as any other religious faith. And this is why, for example, we see progressive absolutism about issues like abortion. It's why we hear some people say, oh, it should be legal up until the moment of birth. That is barbaric, but the absolutism of it tells us something, which is that the sexual revolution has led us to a place where the defenders of traditional Christianity are, are now locked in combat with this progressive Gnostic religion grounded in the sexual revolution. 
and there is not a lot of room for compromise there. This is why we see the sharp rise in religious liberty cases, for example, because this new secularist faith does not want to live and let live with Christianity. Why? Because Christianity cannot help sending the message that the sexual revolution was a wrong turn. And that is what the defenders of this new Gnostic faith can't bear to hear. Because deep down inside, I think they know that they are vulnerable. Their religious faith is vulnerable. We, we see this now as, for example, the phenomenon of transgenderism comes into question and voices outside religious orbits are starting to ask, what are we doing here? How did we get to this place where we are confused about the most elementary questions in nature? There is an answer to that, which is the rise of this new Gnostic faith. And I hope I spell it out in more detail in the book, but I do think it's an important key to understanding where we are and why our society feels so chaotic now. It's because of that head-on collision between traditional faith and this new faith. And this new faith, you remark in the book, Mary, is, is missional. It has a missionary zeal. And we see that in, in instances like um, the Gates Foundation, um, you know, essentially trying to eliminate the population in, of Africa or, you know, things like that, which, you know, have this sort of humanitarian gloss to them, but actually are quite disturbing, um, if not totally wicked, right? Um, so I wonder if you, if you say any more about the, the mission aspect of it. Yes, sure. So this new Gnostic religion, Andrew, wants to proselytize. It wants more followers. And I think the reason it's so intent on this is that deep down, the followers of this new Gnostic faith worry that it's wobbly. And it is wobbly. It asks people to believe incredible things that reason and logic can tear apart. So for this reason, we see a lot of missionary zeal of a certain kind, especially abroad. So for example, we have multinational organizations constantly trying to push on other populations, whatever is the chicest Western idea of sexual liberation of the moment. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the Gates Foundation. That is a perfect case in point. If you look at their website and you look at what they say about wanting to help women with contraception, et cetera, you will notice that none of the women they are talking about look like they come from, say, Northern Europe or Iceland or other places where pale people congregate. No, they are always trying to push this on Africans and other brown people and on places like India. And again, in any other context, this way of trying to boss people around just because you have more money and to boss them in this specifically racialist direction would look terrible. And I think it is going to look terrible in the rearview mirror of history. So this is something that we need to remember because sometimes what we are trying to defend seems hard to defend in today's public square. And yet we need to take the full measure of the obnoxiousness of what we're standing up against. Indeed. The last thing I wanted to, to ask you about uh, with regard to society before we move on to politics is uh, something you alluded to in, in your introductory remarks. You were talking about how um, 
Well, let me let me read this quote from from your book that that sums up, I think, um, what you were saying before. You said, outside the consciously religious communities of the counterculture, generational reality for almost everyone else in the West can be summarized in one word: fewer. It it really that really bowled me over that sentence. You know, I, I was thinking how you know the promises of the sexual revolution were meant to be expansive, opening up, making the world bigger in some respects. And yet what's actually happened is it's everything feels so much smaller and more cramped and, and less interesting, less fun, less enjoyable. Um, I, I just think that's a really strong point that you made. If there's anything more you wanted to elaborate on that, I think our listeners would love to hear. Andrew, I conclude that we have inflicted a wound on ourselves that we are only beginning to understand. We have subtracted people out of other people's lives. This was not done intentionally. As you say, the birth control pill was supposed to make us freer and better and more fun. But quite the opposite has happened. And we are awash in empirical evidence about this. This is another point that I feel the need to hammer home. We're not talking about theology here. We are talking about the fact that, for example, uh, psychiatric problems in children and teenagers have been rising for decades. I know because I've been tracking this for about 25 years, long before the pandemic. There were sharp rises in anxiety, depression, OCD behaviors, uh, quote, acting out, and the rest of it. Now, I'm not saying all of these problems trace back to the sexual revolution, but I am saying that if you have a home without a dad and maybe one child or maybe two children who don't have the backup of an extended family, who don't have lots of siblings to fall back on, then you have a recipe for deep loneliness of the kind that is being charted, again, across the Western world. This is not just an American thing. So we are not lacking in evidence that something has gone badly wrong for us and what I'm trying to do in these books is connect the dots back to the origins of the thing. Yeah. And here's where, you know, we transition to your discussion of politics, because you made uh, what I thought was a very interesting observation um, based on uh, the work of James Q. Wilson. You, you um, referred to him a number of times um, that, you know, a lot of us out here in the world, we think, OK, America or Western society has this divide now and it seems to be getting worse. We've got, you know, red states and blue states. We've got maybe it's rich and poor. Maybe it's, you know, divided along racial lines, whatever it may be. But you you say the real thing to focus on, the real divide in our society is not on those things necessarily or primarily, but first on whether one comes from a broken home or an intact home. And you talk about familial wealth versus familial poverty. I wonder if you could say more, because I'm not sure that a lot of our listeners will have thought about this issue the way that you describe it in the book. Well, I owe that discussion to James Q. Wilson, who was a brilliant social scientist. And over 25 years ago now, he gave a major speech in Washington, D.C., in which he made that point. He said that if you look at negative indicators like criminality, truancy, drug use, promiscuousness in teenagers, you will have, be able to predict these things best if you know the family structure that the individual in question is coming from. In other words, family structure had become more predictive of outcomes than wealth 
than race even in a country that had a history of racial uh, trouble and racism. Even so, said Wilson, nothing explained outcomes for kids better than the kind of family they came from. And I heard this live and I was floored by it and I've never forgotten it. And I think as a way of understanding what's going on in our society, his paradigm can't be beat, which is why I'm reviving it and adding new material to it. You also, you know, you, you move beyond that into addressing the way this plays out in specific um, problems, specific, like, you know, some of those issues that I, I, I listed at the beginning of the podcast, some of these things that we've been experiencing over the last 10, 15 years in our society. You say that there's a kind of a whole world of people out there now from broken homes who are, you say, looking for a fight. And, um, and some of them you even say, I thought this was really provocative, but right on, you say a lot of it has to do with daddy issues. So I wonder if you could say more about that in the specific context of maybe some of these like social upheavals we're experiencing. So a lot of people ask, why are we suddenly awash in identity politics? What's going on out there such that people take their primordial loyalty, not to the family, not to the church, not to the community, but to these groups based on things like ethnicity or race or erotic inclination. And we all know that more and more people seem to set their compasses by membership in these kinds of groups. So my answer to the question, where is this coming from, is again, the collapse of the family has left many people adrift. And we are social creatures. We can't really live in this atomized way. And so people find groups to attach to. Similarly, the decline of organized religion has done the same thing. A great many people who come from messed up places have found solace in the churches, in being Christians, in regarding themselves as children of God, first and foremost. But a lot of people, especially young people today, don't even know that that's an option. So what are they supposed to do? They've been cast out by family, cast out away from faith, and they find these identity groups and attach in this primal way, which is part of why politics doesn't feel like politics as usual anymore. It feels like a metaphysical battle much of the time. And in a certain way, it is. It has become a battle over first principles like where do your loyalties lie? To your faith and your family or to groups of victims that you feel you can band together with? Well, that's a good transition then to to delving into your discussion of the church and and Christianity, Um, how you point out that religious rupture and extremist identity politics are related, just as you've just described. Um, and, and earlier in our discussion, you were, you were telling us about the kind of new religion, this kind of Gnostic religion of, of secularism. But what we face, right, isn't just a kind of uh, battle now between Christianity and this new religion. Rather, Christianity itself is being compromised, is being, is being weakened, is being destroyed to some degree in some places by these same trends. Um, and now I am a former Anglican, I'm a former Protestant and, and indeed a former Anglican, and I really appreciated how you 
introduce your, uh, your, your discussion of the church and the problems that Christianity faces through this, this lens of what you call Christianity light. And you actually use ang- several examples from the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion as particularly emblematic of this problem. So what is this Christianity light? Well, Christianity light refers to what I think is the most important dividing line in Christianity today. The dividing line is between people who think that the churches can capitulate to or accommodate the sexual revolution and the camp of Christians that says, no, we can't. It's been tried and failed. And as you know, Andrew, in one particular chapter, I walk through Anglican history because that's terribly instructive this way. Back in 1930, what was supposed to be one little exception made to the ban on contraception quickly led to a widespread collapse among most Protestant denominations uh, on holding the line at anything relating to contraception. And soon after that, some came to embrace abortion, et cetera. Now, the important thing for listeners to understand here is that every Christian denomination is in a civil war, figuratively speaking. And that war is about one thing only. It's not about the Beatitudes. It's not about good works. It's not about serious theological differences that have divided the churches through the centuries. No, this is all about the question of whether the Christian rule book on sex can be changed without thoroughly compromising the churches. And given the historical evidence, I think the uh, answer to that question is no, it can't be changed without compromising everything about Christianity. But readers can make up their own minds on looking at the evidence. Yeah, you make the point in the book that you know secular people or, or big proponents of the sexual revolution never criticized the church for feeding poor people or you know many many aspects of Catholic social teaching, right? But they do. You know, they they are stuck on these questions of sex. And these also seem to be um, sticking points even for people in the Catholic Church, certainly out in the in the uh, Protestant world. As you say, it really is something of a civil war. And I was reading when I was reading what you wrote and I I really appreciated that you went back to that um, example from the 1930 Lambeth Conference where Anglicanism made this exception. It's very difficult for me to. to dismiss the idea of the slippery slope. You know, you'll often hear people say, you know, oh, you know, it's not going to be as bad as you think or something, when in fact it really seems to be as bad or worse. Um, would you say that's true? And, you know, are we are we sort of slipping in ways that maybe we're not considering fully enough right now? Sure. I think the slippery slope is very important here. And sometimes awareness of it has good consequences. I'll give you an example. Uh, Many Protestants, as you know, thought that Catholics were obsessed with the abortion question and with contraception. But during the 1990s and beyond, a number of important, mostly American Protestants started to rethink this and said, wait a minute, was it the embrace of contraception that led to abortion as we know it today? Because if that causality held, then maybe we should be rethinking contraception as some Protestants are. So that's an example where looking back through history, one reaches a different conclusion than one had at the outset, just as today 
Some people are asking, was it the acceptance of same-sex marriage that led to talk of polygamy and polyandry and transgenderism? Obviously, there is some kind of causal connection in that chain. And in all, I think what these experiments of looking backward do is encourage people to think about the integrity of traditional church teaching in the first place, because every attempt to pick out one strand or pick out another seems to result in a bigger catastrophe, including religious catastrophe, than anyone imagined at the outset. Yeah, you know, Mary, I was thinking about how when I was growing up as a Protestant, um, cert- I don't, I didn't ever experience anyone criticizing birth control. I mean, it was, I think it was okay for everyone. Um, I mean, I certainly never heard it presented as some big problem issue, but homosexuality certainly was presented as a big problem issue. Um, and and it was, I'm just really curious and hopeful, you, you, you allude to this, that even in the Protestant world now, people are kind of making the connection like, ah, if there's a disordered thing about homosexual acts, well, doesn't that also relate to other other acts that are even you know um, you know contracepted acts among even among married people that you know in other words I, I like where you're you're inviting us to think like even in non-Catholic spaces there are people who are making these connections because of just how how far the pendulum has swung. Yes, very much so, and part of what I think is also so important about the traditional. Christian rule book, which we all know is very difficult, right? The disciples of Jesus are the first people to complain about this. They say these teachings are hard, and they are hard, but they have, again, an integrity. So, for example, one could sin and come back to the fold because one's identity wasn't being a sinner. Look at how far our world has evolved in the wrong direction from that redemptive understanding. Instead, now everything and anything is an identity. Why do people feel the need to identify themselves, again, with their erotic leanings, their race, their ethnicity in this absolutist way? I I think the answer is that they do not see themselves as securely attached to their families, and they do not see themselves as securely attached to a religious faith. And these Uh, simultaneous declines have really knocked the struts out of a lot of humanity these days. And this is a a big point to absorb, but it also explains what's going on in the churches. Yeah. And you make the point um, too, that the, the lack of family that is the result of contraception, that is the result of the broken homes that ensue from, you know, the sexual revolution weakens the church because you say the lack of a family removes a social incentive for church. In other words, if you don't have families, then you don't, you don't feel such a strong need to go to church. So it's like this, you know, it's this, it's going both ways, isn't it? Yes, it is going both ways. And again, the way in which the birth control pill shrunk the family is also essential here, I think, because it's not just that having kids makes people want to go to church to help with the instruction of those kids. Of course, that's part of their motivation. But I believe there is also something more transcendent going on. Many people who are parents would say this was the most transformative moment of their lives. This was 
a moment when they felt in touch with something far beyond themselves, that they felt a place in the cosmos that they had never felt before. This is how ordinary people talk about the experience of birth. And so what happens in a world where more and more people have no experience of children, of procreation, of holding a baby, I think what happens is what we are seeing, which is that a certain amount of empathy is draining out of our world and people are less able to glimpse the divine through the project of co-creation. Again, those are perhaps abstract words, but I think they describe the concrete reality that we see of this new aversion to the very idea of creation, this idea that we are some kind of pollution on the earth and that we are the problem and that it would be wrong to have children. All of these ideas that are percolating out there in the culture, I think, have the same root, which is that we have been living in this radically truncated way that is now having effects throughout our society. And you make a beautiful point that I want to come back to uh, when we close um, about just how this isn't abstract, actually, about how, you know, how, how families and children really have this power. So I want to come back to that because you, you close the book beautifully with, a, with an invitation to think that way. Um, but in the time that remains, I want to touch on a couple of more things. One of them is you have a chapter where you uh, reevaluate or kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, share your appreciation for Humanae Vitae, the, the kind of um, document that shook the world in 1968, um, in which the church um, upheld, which Pope Paul VI upheld uh, traditional Catholic teaching on sexuality, on, on um, contraception. Um, and you make the point in that chapter that it's just undeniable that contraception has made people miserable. You've alluded to that a little bit already in what we've said before. Um, but also, um, it it has created, you've already said, you know, we have this this culture of, 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 of fewer, of smaller, but we're now facing this real crisis of population. Um, so I wonder if you could just uh, tell us now um, what the legacy is of Humanae Vitae, and you know what it may what it may say to to the world to take a look at it again today. So, reading Humanae Vitae for the first time was actually one of the experiences that set me down the road that led to these two Adam and Eve books, because I had always read about it but not read it, and so I didn't know until reading the encyclical that it makes a number of predictions about what the world will look like if artificial contraception is embraced. Now, we all know how unpopular Humanae Vitae was and is. I don't know if there's a single global document of the last 75 years that's as hated as that one and as easily mocked. And yet, if you look at the predictions that it made, they are more explanatory of our society today than any set of predictions I'm aware of. So for example, the encyclical predicted that the world after the sexual revolution would be one in which there is more strife between men and women, where men would not respect women as much. I think the proofs for those two statements are all around us. As I discuss in the book, the most common thing said by modern women is that it's almost impossible to find a good man these days. 
And there are deep reasons for this, mainly that the sexual revolution, as Humane Vitae foresaw, essentially flooded the sexual marketplace and left men or many men with very little incentive to settle down with one woman or another. These are today's words that I'm using, but you can hear them in this encyclical with its predictions. Another prediction that came true in ways that could not have been known when Humane Vitae was written was that some governments would come to use these contraceptive technologies coercively, right? Hello, China and the one child policy, for example. And as noted in the book, coercion also happened in India. Coercion also happened in isolated court cases in the United States where women were made forced to use Norplant, for example. So again, we have a prediction about what's going to happen in the world that comes true. And in general, I think that document, uh, Humane Vitae, shines with all kinds of truths that have integrity, not only in that encyclical. Remember, that encyclical is just a restatement of what had been 2,000 years of church teaching in the first place. So all Catholics know that the fastest way to get laughed at in the best places is to defend Humane Vitae or related church teachings. But that doesn't make the defense of those teachings wrong. The defense of those teachings, I think, is uh, now validated not only within the church, but by all the facts we see in our society. I think it's a beautiful document. And I think that uh, people coming to it amid the chaos that you, um, that you talk about, people coming to it for the first time will find a lot of sense in it, even if they're not ready to necessarily um, sign on completely, although let's hope that they will come to that conclusion as well. Um, let's think about this uh, in your epilogue. You talk about uh, resisting the chaos. Um, that that And it's a really hopeful kind of conclusion before uh, kind of a conclusion to the conclusion, which I want to really end with, which is your reflections on the, the Dobbs case and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But, but what, what, do we, what can we do amid the chaos that, that surrounds us in the wake of this long wake of the sexual revolution? The first thing I think we should do is understand that the church is in possession of great truths that many people want who don't know the names of those truths. In other words, what many men and women want is not to be lonely, is to have a faithful partner through life, is to have a family. And one of the things that keeps me going in this kind of work is understanding that many of them have never had this vision before them that the church puts forth of what men and women are for. Instead, they get this flattened version from the secularist culture that says they're creatures made for pleasure, they can reinvent themselves at will, they aren't really tied in any moral way to any other individuals. This is a very crabbed and demeaned notion of the human person, and against it, the Christian understanding uh, that we are creatures, children of God, and that we participate with him in this divine order is vastly more ennobling and important and sings to people in a way that the secularist version does not. So I think we have to strive to find the right language 
to connect with all of those lonely atomized people out there and say, maybe this religion thing is worth a second look because it has a far higher opinion of you than anything else that's on offer. That's a wonderful uh, thought to share. Um, Presumably, as you were finishing the book, I, I don't know what the timeline was, but the, the Dobbs decision came down and this you know, long prayed for, generations worked for goal was achieved and Roe versus Wade was overturned, um, which allowed you, I think, in your book to end on a really hopeful note. And, you know, I'd, l- I'd love to just have you speak open-endedly about your about your feelings of, of the end uh, of uh, Roe versus Wade. But I just want to point out to our readers that maybe the most beautiful part in the book is your um, reflection at the beginning of that appendix, that, that little epilogue chapter, where you talk about your mother who came home um, as a nurse um, when the decision, the Roe versus Wade decision came down. Could you just relate that to our listeners? It's a beautiful story. Yes, of course. I remember it so well. It was 1973, and my mother was a nurse, and in those days, nurses wore starched white uniforms, white stockings, white shoes, and white caps. And one night, she came home from work with a shiny pin on her collar, and I asked her what it was. And she explained that she and some of the other nurses would be wearing this little pin, which represented two tiny feet, two little silver feet, because it meant that they would not participate in abortions. And that was the first time I heard that word. She explained to me what it meant. And the interesting thing about this, Andrew, is that this was not a collection of Catholic nurses. Catholics actually were thin on the ground where I grew up in upstate New York. This was a collection of nurses, period, who knew because of their time and obstetric words and elsewhere, that this was no mere clump of cells inside a pregnant woman. And so in that epilogue, I talk about that. I reflect on how much re-education was needed to train people out of these fundamental truths that the nurses knew. And it was a lot. It was Hollywood, and it was universities, and it was everyone with a stake in the long-running party that was the sexual revolution Uh, wanting to believe that getting rid of this, quote, clump of cells was a negligible thing. Now we know better. The ultrasound uh, was a major turning point in our understanding. But also Dobbs, I think, is a major turning point for the West because the Dobbs decision represents the very first major institutional rollback of the sexual revolution itself. Dobbs says plainly, something went wrong here. Something went too far. We did not have the authority to unleash what has been unleashed. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons, Andrew. Number one, the law is a teacher and Roe was terrible law. Dobbs, on the other hand, is very clear about the limitations on the court. And it's also important because Across the world, after the legalization of abortion in the United States, other countries looked at us and other countries, including Catholic countries like Ireland, like Chile, changed their laws to allow for more abortion. After all, this is what the big kids were doing, right? 
So in this reversal, I think we are going to see reverberations not only in the United States, but also in other countries of the Western world, which again amounts to the first major serious look backward at the sexual revolution and the first major restatement, something went wrong here. It seems to me it is, it's, it's a tough road to hoe, obviously, to begin building back after, you know, after these, these 50 plus years. Um, but, you know, what you, you end the book with just a, a kind of gentle uh, invitation to a strategy. And you say this, I just think it's a beautiful quote. You say, bring on the post-Dobbs future. Let the babies of tomorrow do what babies do. What Americans scarred by Roe missed out on, humanize the people around them. I wonder if you could just say a little more about that, that beautiful uh, quote that you came up with there. Well, I think it's true that subtracting babies and children and teenagers out of the lives of people has been a bad thing. It has coarsened our culture. And similarly, subtracting old people out of our lives, whether through euthanasia or institutionalization at all costs, um, has been a bad thing. We are humanized by sacrifice. We are humanized by taking care of those smaller or weaker or older or sicker than we are. And if one result of Dobbs is more babies in America, I think that will be a great thing for America and for the hearts of Americans. The book is Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, available from Ignatius Press wherever you get your books. Mary Eberstadt, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Appreciate it. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprint. God bless.